welcome to the Hell Project podcast. This is where I share all of the results of the research and reading that I've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years. Uh, I defend the view that uh, without Jesus, we are all dead. Uh, This is the view called conditionalism, and I believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell. And I try to defend that here. The audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel and unfortunately some of the streams do have technical glitches but I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think, share, uh, get involved through Twitter or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Hell Project. Uh, this is where I talk about hell quite a lot, and uh, I have a guest with me this evening or your afternoon if you're in the states. Um, really looking forward to chatting through a few things with Chris Date, talking about uh, Revelation specifically today. Um, quite a few things have come up on well my last live stream where Chris Date was in the chat we decided that that would be the way to go we might also talk about the back and forth with um, Michael Jones and we'll kind of see where this goes as well so just a bit of backstory I wrote a fairly long essay for a theological uh, theology and leadership course that I was on and there was a the response I got from the guy who marked it, who I have a lot of time for, said to read G.K. Beale and his book on Revelation, which just so happens to be in front of me. It's quite significant. Uh, fortunately, Chris Date has engaged with G.K. Beale, and uh, we're going to discuss some of the traditionalist arguments surrounding Revelation 14, 11, and 4, uh, 20, verses 10 to 15. So we're going to—it's going to be fairly in depth. Um, we'll hopefully cover a decent amount of scripture and you can join in ask questions in the live chat if you are there maybe i need to send a link onto uh, facebook and we can maybe get a few more people so i'm gonna bring chris into the ch- into the screen now and hopefully the sound works as well there we go chris you are now on the stream welcome really nice to meet you i'm just going to test the sound to make sure that we are all working. Uh, one second. Yep, it's definitely working. We are <laughs> we are there. Um, what I'm going to do, well, if you want to share a little bit about your story, I'd love to hear your story, how you came to uh, Christ, how you then journeyed into where you're at now with rethinking how... Uh, five ten minutes, um, however long it takes. Just, just I love hearing people's stories um, before we start digging into theological conversation. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, do interrupt and ask questions and stuff if I start droning on for too long, though. Um, so I was uh, an atheist for my for the first twenty years of my life, almost twenty one years. Um, I was not raised in an uh, overtly Christian home. I wouldn't find out until I was a young adult that my parents claimed to be um, Christians. We never went to church. We never discussed uh, theological things. Um, 
once as a very young child, my aunt was a, she experimented with um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I was a little bit interested in it for about a day, uh, but quickly lost interest. A little bit later in elementary school, my best friend was a Mormon. And so for um, maybe a few weeks, I was kind of interested in uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. Um, but again, quickly lost interest, never really believed any of it, just sort of was toying around with the idea. Um, my biggest experiment before becoming a Christian was with Wicca, um, which is a sort of pagan um, religious witchcraft kind of thing. Um, I played around with that for a couple of months in high school, but never really believed any of the theology. I just wanted to be able to cast spells and impress girls. Um, I never succeeded. But um, and maybe that's why I quickly lost interest. Uh, so, yeah, but apart from those brief experiments, I was not just not a theist. I was um, uh, opposed to theism and, and specifically Christianity. I used to mock and make fun of Christians, um, had no um, I had no tolerance for it, no patience for it. Uh, but when I was a teenager, my dad and I started going on these yearly camping trips um, not not just camping, but also caving. We both really enjoyed um, visiting some of the major cave systems around the uh, continental United States. Um, Lewis and Clark Caverns, Jewel Cave, uh, Mammoth Caves, and, you know, a whole bunch of other things. And um, in my late teenage, early adult years, whenever I would go on these trips, I would ask my dad questions about his faith, but they weren't genuine questions, genuinely interested in his answers. I wasn't seeking in any way. I was asking the kinds of gotcha um, questions meant to sort of illustrate how ridiculous Christianity is. Um, and so I wasn't, you know, th there was no interest there. I was just sort of trying to uh, bring the ridiculousness of Christianity to light uh, and make fun of my dad for it. But then one year, uh, shortly after the birth of my first son, who is now 18, so I guess I've been a Christian for 18 years now, um, shortly before the birth of my first son, we went on one of these trips, and this was, this was, this was in, I guess, the year 2000, um, maybe 2001, and at the time, there was a big, um, there was a whole lot of uh, uh, debate and discussion around whether the phrase, under God, should be on the dollar bill here in the United States. And I remember the the first half of this trip with my dad, I um, you know I was adamantly opposed to under God being on the dollar bill, and I was again asking these kinds of gotcha questions meant to make Christianity look foolish. But literally overnight, and for no evident reason, my heart was changed. Oh. I went to bed one night. Uh, yeah, I went to I went to bed in the tent one night, um, opposed as I had always been, and I woke up the next more the next morning, and um, I I. I something had changed. My questions were genuine all of a sudden. I was sincerely interested in my dad's answers. Um, I wasn't mocking any longer. I wasn't asking gotcha questions. I was genuinely interested in what it is that my dad believed and why and stuff like that. <clears throat> I no longer had this animosity toward religion and toward the idea of under God being on the dollar bill. And, you know, when we, when we got back home, uh, I had never spent any real time in the Bible, maybe a little bit here and there. And what I read always sounded like fairy tales and myths. But when I returned home, I got a Bible and I started reading it and it just felt real and believable. And, and it was more like reading a newspaper than reading a fairy tale. Um, and, you know, I'm still brand new to this faith. I hardly know what it is that I should believe and why. And so I started listening to um, 
uh, uh, radio stations, you know, sermons, pastors and things like that, but also apologetics things. I, I listened to Hank Hanegraaff, the so-called Bible Answer Man, right. very early on in my faith and learned a whole lot about the uh, importance of um, sound theology and biblical exegesis and apologetics. Um, and, and, and just really fell in love with it and, and fell in love with it and developed a passion for it. Uh, at the same time, my wife was still not a believer by this point. We had gotten married, both of us as atheists. In fact, we, um, we were so insistent upon our atheism that we demanded that a, um, uh, a justice of the peace perform our wedding rather than like a pastor or a uh, minister or something like that. Right. And that turned out to be a little bit of a mistake because the guy showed up to our wedding drunk and he forgot to have us read our vows to each other. He forgot to have us kiss each other at the end. In fact, one of my wife's um, uncles had to sort of yell out, well, kiss her already because the the, um, oh the justice of the peace. Oh the, yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, she and I had been both, we were both atheists when we got married. Now here it is coming back from this trip with my dad and I'm completely different. And um, my thoughts and opinions and priorities and things changed. I mean, just as one example, um, I didn't have any issue with homosexuality prior to becoming a Christian, but after becoming a Christian, I became convicted that it was it was wrong. It wasn't just yucky; it was morally wrong. Um, I, before becoming a Christian, I had no problem with abortion. In fact, to my shame, I tried to get my wife to have an abortion with our first child. Um, now she ended up ha having a miscarriage, and so um, you know the end result was kind of the same. But thankfully, she she wasn't comfortable with doing that. Um, and you know, praise God that I didn't get my wife to, yeah, right. Yeah. But anyway, so, but, but, but now as a Christian, I, I, I was, I was convicted that it was wrong. And so these are just two examples of many of the ways in which I was totally different. And that caused a lot of, um, strife in my marriage for a few years. Um, my wife said I was a completely different person and we really struggled. In fact, she just showed me, she showed me a photograph just recently that she had dug up of the first Halloween after I had become a Christian. And she tells me, and, and in the photo, she's, she's dressed up as Satan. She's got like a, you know, red suit with a tail and horns. And she did it, she tells me, just to piss me off, or, well, just to upset me. Sorry, I don't mean to speak <laughs> no, a little bit. No, it's fine. Um, but praise God, a, a few years later, she was saved. And that's a whole other story that we can get into another time. Yeah, no, um, that's, that's amazing. So, so that's, that's how I became a Christian. Yeah. Phenomenal. Now, yeah. do you want to? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, mean, I, I love that it's just sort of, just sort of happened. Um, I, I think the. It sounds, it sounds very Calvinistic. <laughs> it, it really Calvinist. Yeah, but it does. It does. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that's great. I, I love hearing all that. And, um, yeah, so from that you you went into apologetics, and where did your understanding of hell was hell part just just interesting? Like how early on did you start thinking about hell, or were you taught it early on? What was your experience? Well, so that's yeah, that's a really interesting story. Um, first of all, it's important to recognize that um, somebody who's who's an atheist and becomes a Christian in their adult life probably already knows what they're supposed to believe. And I certainly did. Right. Um, I had never gone to church, and yet I knew, whether because it was the culture that I imbibed it from or from popular TV and media, movies or whatever, I knew, well, now I'm a Christian. I guess I believe in eternal torment. And sure enough, um, uh, that was what I was hearing from these pastors and um, apologists that I would listen to. Mm -hmm. I remember early on in my faith, I, was, uh, I encountered 
um, a couple of friends who I discovered were Jehovah's Witnesses or had become Jehovah's Witnesses. They are no longer. But at the time, when I found out that they were, and we started discussing the differences between my faith and theirs, and I was trying to see if there was any merit to it, uh, the topic of hell came up, and um, they said, it's a myth, it's a lie, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I was like, no, it is what the Bible teaches, and here's where we can show it. You know, here, here's how I demonstrate it. So I defended the doctrine of eternal torment and fully believed it in those early years of my faith. Mm -hmm. And from then all the way until today, even now, as somebody who no longer believes in that view of hell, I still don't have any sort of moral or philosophical objection to it. I don't have any sort of emotional con uh, consternation about it. I don't, I've never lost sleep at night thinking about my lost loved ones. And whether that means I'm cold-hearted or not, is who knows? I'm just saying, for me, I never. there was nothing ever pulling me away from this traditional view of hell. Right. Well, but, but what I did develop very early on, and for a number of different reasons, the people I was listening to, the person that would become my best friend and mentor even to this day, um, what I did develop very early on was a deep and abiding commitment to the authority and to the inerrancy of the Bible. And I was and I, was, and I am fully committed, at least so far as I am able to tell, to following where the Bible leads um, even if it means having to give up some belief I have, some sort of cherished idea or whatever. Um, and, you know, some examples of that, I, I uh, started out as a Christian continuing to believe in evolution. I mean, that's what I was taught, right? I mean, that's what scientists believe, so it must be true. But I became convicted uh, soon after becoming a Christian uh, that young earth creationism is, appears to be what the Bible teaches and appears to be what the scientific evidence teaches. I know that's neither here nor there. It's not part of this co topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's fine. But it's just one example of, of several areas in which I changed my mind because I became convinced that the Bible teaches it. Right. So fast, fast forward to 2009, I think it was, and I started a, a theology podcast because I, um, I, I, I didn't think I, – there, there was a part of me that wanted to go to uh, uh, university to get a Christian education in Bible and theology, but I didn't think that, uh, that I'd be able. That's changed, and now, as you know, I'm wrapping up a master's degree here, uh, and, and we can talk about that later if you like. But, um, but because I didn't think that I was going to get to – get a higher education and, and, and do some sort of full-time ministry or something like that, I figured, okay, well, I'll do what it seems my fellow theologians and things are doing now for ministry, and that's start up a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that, uh, and it was, it, it was called Theopologetics, which is sort of a combination of the words theology and apologetics. Mm -hmm. Theopo Theopologetics.com is still up, uh, and all the episodes are still able to be downloaded. And um, very early on, I started periodically interviewing guests, and many of those guests were guests that disagreed with me on some topic or another. Um, I wanted to expose myself and my listeners to views they might not hold so that they can better be, so they can either change their mind based on where they think the scriptures lead or because they, or, or, or better understand how to articulate and defend what it is that they believe. Um, this was an important thing I thought as part of my ministry. Well, one guest that I ended up having on, and how I had him on is another story, or, or how I found out about it, but uh, his name is was Edward Fudge. He's the author of the seminal work on the view of hell that I now hold. His book is called The, uh, the Fire That Consumes, and it was um, this was in a 2011, I believe it was, that I had him on the show to discuss that book. And in the course of preparing for that interview and conducting that interview— I went from being very confident about the doctrine of eternal torment to being completely on the fence because 
although there was no part of me that wanted to believe in something other than eternal torment, in fact, quite the contrary, everything within me wanted to maintain belief in that because I knew that if I ended up rejecting it, it would be problematic for me in terms of ministry and opportunities and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and sure enough, I've gone on to lose relationships and, and lose friendships and you know lose opportunities and stuff like that. So, so I desperately wanted to remain a believer in the, um, the tradition, but it became very clear to me in uh, through reading uh, Edward Fudge's book and testing it in light of scripture and then conducting that interview, it became very clear to me that this was a very challenge. There was a very challenging biblical case for uh, what I would, what I then discovered was called conditional immortality, sometimes called annihilationism. And I didn't know how to answer uh, any of the arguments, the biblical arguments that Edward Fudge was making. So I was on the fence from that interview, and then in the months that followed, I had other guests on my show and interviewed them. For example, an author named Larry Dixon, who wrote a book called The Other Side of the Good News, which to this day is something, the, that interview is, is today something of a um, uh, historical event because a lot of people listen to that. And when, when people listen to that, what they're hearing is somebody, me, who is on the fence now between these two views, interviewing somebody who's a firm believer in the doctrine of eternal torment and a published author on that topic. Right. And yet I was running him circles with the kinds of questions and objections I was having. Um, and he, and he just couldn't answer them. And, uh, so, and then I, I hosted a couple of debates on my podcast on the topic. And finally, by the end of 2011, I felt I was pretty, um, Pretty, especially after I had my first debate on the topic, I, I pretty much became convinced. In 2012, I became a, uh, I was invited to uh, be a part of this brand new ministry that Peter Grice was starting up called Rethinking Hell. I appeared on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, and sort of the rest is uh, right. is history. Yeah. You know? So your your visit to well, not visit, but your uh, episode on Unbelievable was that right at the beginning of Rethinking Hell starting up? Yes, uh-huh. I think that, um, in fact, I could probably look it up really quickly. Rethinking Hell went public in mid-2012, I believe. Okay. And, uh, Al, uh, oh, it wasn't Al Mohler that I was my debate. I did debate Al Mohler on Unbelievable uh, a few years later, but it was a guy named Steve Jeffrey okay. that I debated on Unbelievable first. Um, I'm trying to pull that up just really quickly. Uh, yeah, it was March of 2012. So behind the scenes... Rethinking Hell was starting up. Um, I don't think we went public until after this uh, debate. Right. But yes, that would that was uh, right around the time Rethinking Hell was becoming a thing. Okay. Yeah, I was vaguely aware of Rethinking Hell. So I'm part of um, an apologetics and evangelism Facebook group in the UK um, called called UK Apologetics and Evangelism. Really creative name. And they, <laughs> they shared... Um, your conference in London was that 2016. Yes. Um, and oddly enough, I went back onto the the chat from around then, and I was so 2016. I was not really thinking about <laughs> this topic at all. Maybe just uh, you can see in my comments that I'm fairly friendly to it, but I'm not really arguing for or against. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's, it's been four years for me, so it's fairly soon after that, I think I saw your Rethinking Hell, um, the book that you edited with all the different mm. articles in it, uh, on, on my friend's bookcase, who I think went to your conference in London, a guy named Daniel Roger, um, and uh, yeah, 
I I called him a heretic as a joke, and he told me to, <laughs> he told me to figure out John three sixteen and the meaning of perish, and um, and that kind of started me off um, down this track. And it, interesting, uh, on your one of your live videos, I was catching up with um, you mentioned John three sixteen didn't really stand out to you till afterwards. That's right. Yeah. Um, where for for me it was it was that that probably kicked it all off. Um, so, it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting hearing how every conditionalist um, first, you know, what it is that first got them thinking. Because for me, uh, what I didn't tell in that story about my podcast and having Edward Fudge on, the reason I ended up reaching out to Edward Fudge and inviting him is because I had been, um, uh, I had be- become started to become friends with Glenn Peoples, whom you interviewed, uh, yes. I think, last time on the yeah, show, yeah. and uh, he and I were both blogging at Dee Dee Warren's blog, the Preterist blog, which I don't think exists any longer. She's kind of moved on from that ministry. But um, but at one point, he and I were discussing um, his belief in physicalism, um, which I now hold, and that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but um, uh, I brought up Matthew 10, 28 as uh, you know, proof that humans have bodies and souls. And he said, well, before, I'm just curious, before we talk about that, what about the fact that Jesus says the body and soul will be destroyed in hell? I mean, how do you reconcile that with your view? And and he said, and I said, well, that's a good point. But what about Mark nine forty eight, where Jesus says in in Gehenna, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched? And and Glenn told me, well, go look at what Jesus is quoting from in Isaiah sixty six twenty four. Mm-hmm. And I went there and I saw that it was corpses. And for me, that was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea yeah, that yeah. that was the picture here. And so that for me is what got me to say, oh, let's get Edward Fudge on the show and start exploring this. Um, it's just interesting the doorway that brings people, different people into this uh, this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, for, for me, it was, it was fascinating. I'd, I'd read Rob Bell's Love Wins. Uh, when it Absolute fell, dribble. Yeah, it was. It's just a whole load of questions. And yeah. uh, I remember reading that and going, if that's the best universalist you can offer, then, well, I don't even know if it was universalist. It was all just come out. It's unclear. It's really yeah. unclear. Uh, and so I kind of came out going, well, I, I can, if that's the argument, then whatever. I'm not even sure what, what argument it was. And then um, I kind of skim read Erasing Hell the first time. So it's sort of a response to Rob Bell. Um, I didn't really get into it. And and yeah, completely missed the whole bit that they're fairly friendly to annihilationism. Um, and then it wasn't until really I've been engaging in the Facebook group for a while that I picked up Raising Hell again. And then mm. sort of followed Preston Sprinkle's story through to where he is now. Um, yeah, it is interesting. It was just kind of that somewhere down the line, something really clicked in me that... Um, it's probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years, where although I'd been sort of interacting on the Facebook group, I had been writing a note full of all the verses that could be taken as conditionalist and from Genesis to Revelation. And I remember messaging my my brothers and my, my dad. I've probably got the WhatsApp message still on, on the chat. But as I, say, I know this is a fairly substantial thing, but here's, here's where I'm at. Here's a load of verses that I think point to that, and um, I'd be interested in your feedback. And kind of from there, really, just uh, uh, once you see it, really in scripture, it's really hard to unsee it. Um, it's kind of like taking the the pill in the Matrix that wakes yeah. you up, right? <laughs> it, everything, yeah. everything changes, and you see the world for what it is. It's yeah. pretty amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, and for, for me, and I've had, to, I, I, you probably get this as well, why, why on earth do you talk about hell so much? What is it about hell that, that interests you? And it's not actually hell itself, or even like what happens to the wicked, but it's it's the better understanding of the Old Testament, and um, a better understanding of how the Old Testament leads us into the New and then it's also a better understanding of eschatology in general, like the hope of heaven coming to earth, God dwelling with people is just, that was just mind boggling to me. And, and so uh, I've done a seminar that's on, on my YouTube called The Good News of Hell. And, and really it's, it's the stuff that happens to people who don't believe in Christ is kind of, it's weird that that has led me to a better understanding of what Christ has done. Uh, for us and and the the hope of eternal life and so now that when we are new it's come up quite regularly recently but now you hear people who say well well death doesn't mean you cease to exist and you're going but what what about heaven why is there some realm where these people exist in some death like uh, existing it doesn't doesn't make sense of the eschaton of the the hope of the new heaven and the new earth so um, which is kind of leading us into where we're at. So, well, before we move on, uh, let me riff on that for just a moment because that's another thing that interests me is that for you, your appreciation of the eschaton developed as a result of this. Because for me, it was um, the other way around. I mean, the whole reason, the very first episode of the apologetics was about the doctrine of resurrection because I had become um, convicted that that most Christians I knew. They thought of their everlasting um, uh, their everlasting bliss as something that would take place on clouds playing harps. I'm, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic, yeah, but you know, a, a disembodied their souls up in heaven somewhere. And um, and I was and at the time I still believed in a conscious intermediate state, and so and even now I'm, I'm not arguing against that. Mm-hmm. But but I, I had become convicted that the doctrine of resurrection was sorely lacking in the thinking of of my peers, and so. Um, yeah, so again, it's just interesting the, the different ways in which this story plays out for different conditionalists. Yeah, I think that's a massive thing. We, we continue to talk about the the hope that we have, especially apologists. They love that uh, verse in 2 Peter, was it 2 Peter 3.15, that we, we should have reasons for the hope that we have, and we mm. kind of know a little bit about eternal life. But I, know, I remember when I was younger thinking eternal life sounds really boring, <laughs> especially if it's the the imagery of singing holy, holy, holy repeatedly. Like that just doesn't really fill my thirteen year old mind with with something that I wanted. Um, so yeah, the the shift of there will be no more pain, no more death, no more mourning. To be able to say that outright and not have to try and wrangle this definition of death that something actually means that they exist and continue to live on it just yeah it was so freeing and and yeah it, mm-hmm. as you say it's like the world has suddenly become uh colored rather than just saying yeah black, black and white, white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um yeah uh, that's kind of where we're at so i'm very much of the view that if you take revelation out of the bible which you wouldn't, but if you did, you would come out conditionalist. So Genesis to to uh, Jude, you'd be very hard pressed to uh, become uh, it, it turn into eternal conscious torment. 
Mm. Um, but for for whatever reason, the two verses that we get in Revelation, we are thrown at us. I put us as conditionalists in, in the same camp. Thrown at us as the. This is what we should read every other verse in the Bible through the lens of Revelation fourteen eleven and Revelation twenty ten to fifteen. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to dig into a bit. I mean, you, you've actually shared, I think on your Q&A, you did a fairly in-depth um, look at Revelation 14.11. So what, with that one, uh, there's a couple of questions I'm going to ask specifically from this, this uh, tome, a tomb, whatever you call it, this big book from oh, G.K. Yeah. <laughs> Beale's um, mammoth effort at looking at Revelation. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you from that. Um, but let's say, um, for summary's sake, if you, if, I mean, it, it does take time. Anything, when you're, you're throwing one verse, it will take quite a while to unpack Revelation 14.11. But if you only have, say, I don't know, five minutes, if you go longer, that's fine. But what is your summary response to Revelation 14.11 when it's thrown at you going, there you go, all sinners are going to burn for eternity because it says smoke from the torment goes up forever and ever, no rest, day or night. Have that condition list. What is your, your go-to response? Well, before I offer my response to that, let me just say that um, what what I've said to people for years now is that what convinced me of conditional immortality more than anything else was that with virtually no exception, every single proof text that historically has been cited in support of eternal torment proves upon closer examination to be better support for conditional immortality. And these passages in Revelation are, in my mind, no exception to that rule. Um, when I dug into these passages a little bit more closely and, and a little more deeply, I discovered, oh, wait a minute, not only are these not a challenge to conditional immortality, they positively teach it. So with that sort of disclaimer out of the way, or not disclaimer, but anyway, without introduction out of the way, um, the thing that needs to be kept in mind when we when we interpret m anything within the, the uh, most of the book of Revelation, beginning in about chapter 4 all the way to the beginning of chapter 22, is that we're dealing with an apocalyptic symbolic vision that John is seeing while in a sort of trance on the island of Patmos. Um, it's it's uh, there's there's a long biblical tradition of these kinds of apocalyptic visions and dreams. They stretch at least as far back as Joseph in in prison, where he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, and then later when he was released from prison, he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. Um, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. An angel interprets Daniel's dreams. And even here in the book of Revelation, we have an angel interpreting John's dream for him. Um, and the point is that you can't look at something that takes place in this image, point to what takes place in the vision and say, okay, therefore we know that such and such. Because you're being shown bizarre, perplexing imagery um, that if it weren't for a divine interpreter who could tell you what it means, you'd, you'd be clueless. I mean, going back to the cupbearer in prison, for example, and all, or, or the, the, bass, the, 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 um, the, the baker. So Joseph is in prison and he's, and he's interpreting the, the uh, Pharaoh's baker's dream. And the, and the, and the ba baker tells Joseph, I, I had three baskets on my head and birds were coming and eating the food out of the baskets. Now imagine somebody saying, well, look, see, in the dream... The baker has three baskets on his head. Those three baskets must represent the three persons of the Trinity. Hmm. And the birds eating uh, food out of their baskets means that the Trinity, the members of the Trinity are the source of life. 
You see, so look, that's that's what this means, right? Well, no. Hmm. Joseph tells him, no, the, the, the three baskets are three days, meaning the three baskets in the imagery represent or symbolize three days. And we know that that's the same kind of thing going on in the book of Revelation, uh, because, for example, in Revelation 17, John is told that this, this bizarre seven-headed beast that he sees, the seven heads are seven kings. That is to say, the heads of this beast represent or symbolize seven kings. So it's important as we dig into these uh, passages that we're dealing. There's a difference between what takes place in the imagery, and what it means in reality. What what it is that it symbolizes uh, in, in reality. Now, with that distinction in mind, um, which all, by the way, the fact that the Book of Revelation is largely this symbolic vision doesn't mean we can dismiss it. A lot of times, believers in eternal torment claim. Uh, falsely, they're often lying to, through their teeth, that what we conditionalists are doing is dismissing the book of Revelation as if it doesn't really matter. But that's simply a lie. Um, what we say about the book of Revelation is that its apocalyptic nature, its genre, means it has to be interpreted with an extreme amount of care. And you have to exercise the right kinds of hermeneutical principles. Right. So, with that in mind, what I like to point out to people is that Almost all of the imagery that that features in Revelation 14, 9 to 11 um, features elsewhere in the book of Revelation, and I'll get to that in a moment. So the imagery I'm talking about is the um, drinking of God's wrath and uh, being tormented with fire and sulfur and then smoke rising from their torment. All right. That's three distinct images, each of which have um, provenance in the Old Testament. I don't have that majestic of a beard, Shanti, in chat, but thank you. I appreciate that. Now I'm, now I'm nervous that people are looking at my beard. Um, so each of these three images uh, have their provenance in the Old Testament. Uh, they, they aren't original to John or to John's vision. Um, and we'll get to the Old Testament in a moment. But what's interesting is that all three of those things feature later in the book of Revelation in chapters 18 and 19. So um, 18, Revelation 18 describes this blood-drunk uh, vampiric prostitute. Actually, Revelation 17 does. It introduces her. Mm -hmm. um, and, this, and, and she's got Mystery Babylon written on her forehead, and she's riding the beast. And then in chapter 18, um, she is said to drink of God's wrath in uh, verse 6. Uh, she is tormented with fire in multiple places in Revelation chapter 18. And then at the beginning of Revelation 19, a chorus cries out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hmm. So you've got all three of those same images that we just saw in Revelation 14, 9 to 11. But look what the angel tells John that the imagery means in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. So will Babylon, the great city, hmm. be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So all of this imagery in Revelation 18 and 19 converges to paint this picture of a prostitute being burned up and tormented in fire from which smoke rises forever, um, but it symbolizes the destruction of a city. So why would all those images combine in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, to mean something entirely different? In fact, I would argue not just different, but opposite. Because remember, in the traditional view, in the Doctrine of Eternal Torment, um, the, the, the lost are not suffering in a disembodied state in hell. No, they've come back to life, and their bodies have been made immortal, and they physically live on forever into eternity. Um, that's the opposite of being slain and destroyed. It's not just different. Um, so 
so that's in a nutshell what I think Revelation, why I think Revelation 14 is is better support for my view than for the doctrine of eternal torment, because all of the images combined here are used elsewhere in the book of Revelation to communicate destruction. Now, I mentioned the Old Testament. I'll say a word or two about that briefly. Um, uh, the smoke rising forever, and that's the one I'll focus on here when I discuss the Old Testament. It, it first appears in Genesis 19 when um, God rains down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, if, and obviously that slays a lot of their inhabitants. Abraham, it says, goes out and looks at the plains and sees smoke rising from the plains. Um, in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 10, the streams of the city of Edom are, turned, are said to be turned to pitch and smoke rises from it forever. Um, so this, this is symbolism that's very much like what we think as 21st century moderns when we see a mushroom cloud. We immediately associate that with the kind of carnage and destruction that results from an atomic bomb. Um, and so, yeah, I think that when, when, you, when you apply, when you interpret scripture in light of scripture, when you look at how these images are used elsewhere in the very same vision, not to mention where they come from in the Old Testament, you see that the, all these images are combining in Revelation 14 to communicate a picture of death and destruction, not immortal life forever in torment. There you go. That's... Um... <laughs> That's, That's probably more like uh, ten minutes, right? Yeah, I I wasn't actually counting. I was I was reading. <laughs> and I was fascinated. Um, just every time I've I've heard that argument before, but every time I go back into eighteen, chapter eighteen and nineteen, it just seems so obvious. That I was gonna, yeah, I know it, that it is explaining the the paragraph from verse four, uh, chapter fourteen, verse eleven. Um, and so when the first time I heard that, I think it was on one of. Um, your podcast, I was like, oh, this is, this is incredible. It just means it makes so much more sense of things. And I think it's a similar kind of thing when, um, when, when you look at the lake of fire is the second death or it is the second death is the lake of fire. Is that, well, of course, well, why would they make the second death more complicated than the image? And then you, well, you're, you're, you're jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. That's obvious. As you Sorry, know, in Revelation yeah, 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 I am. Sorry. I was getting ahead of myself. So there's a, there's a few, okay. th yeah, there's a few things in there. So <clears throat> with the, um, so I'll go back to my, my notes on 1411. So there, there's one thing that, um, Gregory Beale argues with regard to, so he, he actually is, starts off fairly fair that this could represent annihilation. That's he right. says that it connects with Isaiah 34.10 and the language of Edom, which is her valleys will be turned into pitch, her land into brimstone, uh, which is sometimes translated sulfur, and her land will be as pitch burning night and day um, and will never be quenched. Her smoke will go up. It will be made desolate throughout generations and... Um, they will no longer basically use that land. So that's Isaiah 34.10, which uses so much, so many similar phrases. Um, but then one of his issues is that the reason it can't be annihilation is there's two considerations. And the second of the two, I'll go back to the first one in a moment, is that torment, as used throughout the entirety of Scripture, means conscious suffering mm. um and so what is your response to to that if we've got edom which doesn't have the word torment in but we have smoke going up forever and ever is the torment here meaning that this they're going to experience this torment 
forever and ever, and the smoke is coming from that. What what was your response? Yeah, so this is why I emphasize the distinction between what takes place in the vision and what it symbolizes in reality. The fact that these beast worshippers are tormented in John's vision, um, that that's the only thing that Beale's argument that you've just mentioned substantiates. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Torment seems that the Greek word translated torment there and its and its cognates appears to refer to conscious suffering. Um, but my my immediate response is, well, so what? I just told you that what that there's a distinction between what takes place in the vision and what it actually means in reality. So the fact that they are tormented in the in the in the imagery doesn't work against um, the interpretation that I've here offered. Meanwhile, I would sort of turn this argument against Beale um, and and point out that everywhere in the Book of Revelation, the Greek word thanatos and its cognates refers to physical death. Even in the imagery, even in the um, uh, symbolism, uh, even in the scene in the Book of Revelation's imagery, um, people want to die and aren't allowed to. And die there means actually physically die. So everywhere in the Book of Revelation, thanatos and its cognates means death, physical death. And yet G.K. Beale doesn't think that's what the second death is. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he's being inconsistent, number one. Number two, he's being irrelevant because the fact that torment is taking place in the imagery is beside the point. Um, and thirdly, I'll just point out that even though Isaiah 34.10 doesn't speak of torment, it does say the smoke rises forever. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if Beale's argument is that because the smoke is rising from torment forever, therefore the torment must go on forever, the same exact um, argument, the same exact logic applies to Isaiah 34.10. Uh the fact that the smoke is rising forever means Edom must be burning forever, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, he doesn't think so. Beale doesn't think so. Yeah. So none of this line of argument that Beale makes has any relevance, and on top of that, it's inconsistent. Uh, now, as for why the um, the picture of torment is, uh, especially eternal torment, is used in the Book of Revelation to to symbolize the kind of destruction that I've here argued it symbolizes. Um, that's something that's a little bit difficult for me to comprehend, and I'm willing to admit that. You know, we are almost 2,000 years removed mm-hmm. from this imagery and what its readers, how what they would have associated with it, uh, associated it with. Um, and so, I, but the thing is, is I'm willing to uh, accept that I can't understand why the eternal torment in the imagery could symbolize destruction, because... Uh, even though I can't understand why that's the case, it's clear that that is the case. Mm. Now, I will say one last thing before I hand the microphone back to you. I recently was recently suggested to me that perhaps the reason eternal torment is used in the imagery to symbolize destruction is because um, if conditionalism is true, then and even if dualism is true, where when a human dies the first time, their soul continues to exist consciously awaiting resurrection— even if all of that is true, if conditionalism is true, then when they are resurrected, when their souls are reunited to their bodies and they are finally destroyed uh, as their final punishment, it's both their body and their soul that will be destroyed, as per Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. So their entire conscious existence will end altogether. Now, if that's what's going to happen, then the uh, torment and shame and grief uh, that they're experiencing as they're being um, tried and sentenced and judged and as they're being destroyed— when it comes to an end, it comes to an end at the same time as the the person's consciousness ends. Uh, so they they literally never experience rest from that torment. 
right? If they don't, if they cease to exist consciously, they don't experience any rest from their torment. The torment ceases objectively, but not subjectively. Subjectively, the torment, the, the everything just stops, and they never experience the end of it. And so, it's that's an interesting thought that perhaps the reason eternal torment is used as the symbolism here is because it's as if it goes on forever, mm. because the person who is destroyed never experiences the cessation of that torment. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to replay that one. I think uh, just to think that's. <laughs> it's just it's just yeah. speculation. Yeah, just that's, like, just... that's interesting. I, I've not yeah I've not come across that, and uh, I think a lot of people do struggle with the idea of that uh, no rest day or night as an idea. Well, so well, but let me let me say a word or two about that really quickly because I've recently become convinced that have no rest is a bit of a misleading translation. Um, the, exact same, the exact same language is used in Revelation 4.8. Uh, um, let me see if I can find the, um, the Greek. So I'm looking through an article that my friend William Tanksley and I are currently co-writing oh, yeah. uh, on this very topic. And a lot of these arguments I've already got fleshed out. So I'm trying to find the, the Greek that I had written. Um, well, I'll just use this table here. So in oh. Revelation 4.8, when you have a participle that, that is translated worshipers, you have a verb uh, with the negation, so uh, do not have, and then there's the object of that verb, which is rest, and then there's the time frame, day and night, right? All four, almost all four, well, all four of those things appear in Revelation 4.8, it's just that the participle is different. In Revelation 4.8, in Revelation 4.8, the participle is saying, but the verb with the negation is there, meaning do not have. The same direct object, uh, Greek is on a pausen, means rest. It's there. The time frame, day and night, is there. But how do translations translate Revelation 4.8? It translates them as saying they do not cease to, to say day and night, whatever it is that they go on to say. Right. You see, this, this language of do not have rest is language that communicates um, ceaselessness of something. It doesn't communicate the kind of rest that people think of when they say, oh, they don't, they don't have any rest because they're being tormented. They never have an opportunity to rest. That's not what it's saying. It's saying they don't cease something. Now, what they don't cease doing could be being tormented, but, that, but, it's, but if that um, relationship, if that similarity with Revelation 4.8 is as significant as I seem to think it is, then it's just as plausible, if not more so, that what they don't cease doing is worshiping the beast. Right. And if that's the case, then this really isn't about hell in the first place. It's about something that takes place prior to hell when the beast is still around to be worshipped. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Have no rest is, is not the best translation of that phrase. Yeah, I th and actually, uh, what I did notice in reading G.K. Bill's book is that he does actually agree, before he goes into why we shouldn't, have this view he does actually say why it's valid in some way so his his quote is the the lack of rest will continue uninterrupted as long as the period of suffering lasts though there will be an end to the period therefore the imagery of revelation 14 10 to 11 could indicate a great judgment that will be remembered forever not one that leads to eternal suffering which I, sounds fair to me but what I, find, what I find inconsistent with the book, so I mean, I, I'm still, I, mean, I haven't read all 1,200 pages of this thing, but I've focused in on this book, on this chapter, and I find that he's very selective on what he will use to back up the views that go against uh, the traditional viewpoint. 
But also there's some weird implications. So the reason we shouldn't see that this is the case is, first off, uh, a circular... Let's go to Revelation 20, 10 to 15. Like, that clarifies things. Then it it talks about... Um, where are we? It implies from Revelation twenty two fourteen to 15, so that's where everyone is outside the city, that there is an existence of the wicked. And, but there's no reference to the other aspects of the Old Testament that refer to outside the city, like Isaiah 66, 24, or even Malachi 4, 3, where the wicked will be outside the city, but there'll be ash or corpses. So, I find it incredible. Well not, well, not only that, but even then, e- even if you read it that way, and I don't, and if you'd like me to uh, articulate, yeah. explain why I will, but but even but but even then, they're depicted as being outside of the city in the imagery. But yeah. so what? Yeah, yeah, that's you know, that's, yeah. The, the, what matters is what yeah. symbolism means. Yeah. And what, what is outside? The, yeah. So he kind of takes, and, and it's also interesting that just while I was preparing for this, in the verses, as you pointed out, in verses uh, chapter 14, talks about um, the nations drinking the wine from Babylon. And I don't even know what that looks like. My my brain can't picture nations drinking, like, it's personifying whole nations having a drink. And yet, when we come down to the language of eternal well, the, the smoke of the torment going up for an ever and ever. Because we can Im- imagine people in torment, because that's been burnt on our psyches since whenever we started interacting with the concept of hell, even inadvertently, suddenly, because we can picture that, it's got to be literal. Um, and so, yeah. therefore, that is eternal torment right there for, for everyone. Because I can... but forget the fact that it's filled with all these symbols and, and metaphors and imagery that are later explained. So I, I have found, even in his... I mean, it's a hefty book, but there's, there's still, even in, when it comes to these chapters, it's highly selective. Um, and the other, the other aspect that I, I noticed, just before we move on to Revelation 20, is he does note that smoke is a memorial... It's, and generally, you don't have a memorial until something is finished. Um, you don't. That, that's generally my understanding of it. So yes, they may well have been consciously tormented, but just like the smoke is the memorial to Edom's destruction, the smoke of their torment, what they went through, the memorial of what they went through, goes up forever and ever. And and just like Babylon in in chapter eighteen, people will celebrate. Hallelujah! They are destroyed um so that's kind of my my thinking through i i've still got stuff to deal with i'll probably end up writing some of this up just for my own closure on it but some really yeah i think we've covered most of those with revelation 14 the only other thing that um i thought was was interesting almost as an aside i'm, I'm kind of wondering whether to get to it revelation <laughs> revelation 9 where it talks about so the reason, the reason, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to go here. So, because sure. it's an argument that comes up a load is annihilation is a soft punishment. Mm. People want death. People, uh, yeah, otherwise they wouldn't commit suicide. And you get all these extremes. Therefore, annihilation is just um, for those who are, are wimps and can't handle 
the the strength of God's wrath going on forever and ever. So that is probably a little bit me being sarcastic, but um, I, I do find those arguments frustrating. But there is an argument in Re- Revelation nine six mm-hmm. where it says they will seek death and not find it. There's an aspect that actually the the Bible could potentially make the argument that people are seeking death as a release from torment, mm. therefore is annihilation a soft punishment? Is, is that a legitimate argument coming from Revelation 9-6? That's happy to, yeah. Yeah, sure. No, I, I don't think it's a good argument. First of all, that um, them not seeking death, or them seeking death and not finding it is, again, something that's taking place in the imagery. It's not part of what it symbolizes. Secondly, it's um, it's not taking place in hell. This is prior to the return of Christ and the um, uh, the uh, the established. Or sorry, this is prior to the beginning of the millennium, which even as a non-millennialist, I would say is in the past, and pre-millennialists, premillennialists would say the same thing. Um, but most importantly, this verse at most testifies to what I think is true, which is that when people are in extreme, prolonged agony. Then they then they they seek death. They they wish they would die just so that they would no longer suffer. And I think that's generally true. But it's not the case that human beings are usually in extreme prolonged periods of agony, right? Um, and and besides, we have other biblical testimony in the uh, book of Hebrews, for example. Um, we have in Hebrews two fifteen, uh, Jesus is said to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we've got, and there's a whole bunch of other, you know, I discussed this in an article that I have published in a journal called Hope's Reason, okay. uh, which you might include a link to in your your description. I'll send that to you yeah, after we're do. done. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the Bible makes it very clear that people fear death. People don't want to die. But yes, when, um, and, and for that matter, by the way, that same article I just mentioned documents that human beings... Even outside of scripture, desperately fear death. Even they fear annihilation. So, for example, um, the first century Greek historian Plutarch said that his fellow Greek countrymen would much rather be tormented forever in Hades than uh, be annihilated. Um, Augustine said uh, in in the City of God, he said that if if you were to offer a sinner the choice between being tor- being made immortal and living forever in torment, or being annihilated they would joyfully embrace being made immortal and living forever in torment hmm. rather than be annihilated. And the reason they say these, said these things is because, and they both say this much, it's because um, life craves, desperately desires to go on living. No life wants to end. Um, the, the 20th century agnostic poet Philip Larkin has a poem called Albad, which is extremely chilling in its description of this agnostic's fear of being annihilated when he dies. Hmm. Um, so, so the reality is humans desperately fear death. That's why, by the way, people are spending so much money on transhumanist efforts to achieve immortality through technology. Um, cryogenic freezing and digitization of consciousness and artificial bodies and on and on it goes. It's because we're desperately find, trying to find a way to keep on living forever. So, um, but I do think that in many cases, when people are in pro, you know extreme prolonged periods of agony, they would rather die than go on experiencing it. But that doesn't say anything about um, the general state of affairs, you know, in daily life. And what's more, 
that would only work as an argument against conditionalism, possibly, if one held to a view of conditionalism which says that the wicked will suffer in the, the process by which they are destroyed might take an extremely long time. Right. Um, that's not my view, and so uh, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to people who do have that view to answer that objection. I think, look, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire, it was relatively brief. Even Jesus' death on the cross lasted only hours, and I think that those are decent um, pictures of how long the destructive process will take place in hell, and that's just not enough time, um, I think, for the average person to say, you know what, I'd rather just cease to be. Because we, we love life, and the thought of no longer experiencing anything ever again is absolutely dreadful. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair answer. I mean, it is in extreme scenarios, but... It, what that is is an escape from pain the flip side is that we are enjoying eternal life and death is the cutting off from eternal life it's the mm. you will not experience the positive so it's not like you're going to want to escape eternal life you you want that and death is is a slightly different take on it I think when, when you're trying to escape pain, yes, death can seem like a relief, but the other relief would be, I want eternal life, which is kind of what we're trying to draw people to through the gospel. Is mm. you're, you're in pain, or you're, you're under the curse of death, come to life, rather than yeah. be finished off in death. And I think, I've, I've heard you use the argument, I think, before, at least people on, on the group, on the Facebook, have argued that it seems like traditionalists just don't, like eternal life enough <laughs> this is like they, they don't understand that being cut off from eternal life is a huge punishment and that means death because you don't get life uh, whereas other others are just i mean we get accused of not thinking god's wrath uh, or sin is serious enough but i think I'd rather hold to a, an, a, an amazing sense of eternal life and hope. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and although I want to be charitable toward those traditionalists who, who are being accused in that argument of, of not taking eternal life very seriously, although I want to treat them with charity, it is interesting how so frequently traditionalists will say to us things like, you think the wicked are just going to die in hell. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah. oh, their their punishment is just simply to die and cease to be. Yeah. Right. I mean, they they imagine them saying that if if some if they found out that a um a, a, you know a a foreign country had a plane on the way to their city to go drop an atomic bomb on it, imagine a traditionalist saying, "Oh, they're just gonna die." Yeah. No, they're just simply going to burn up. <laughs> yeah. It's absurd. Nobody yeah. thinks that. Yeah. But in this debate, for some reason, it's like their brain gets turned off a lot of times, yeah. and, and I, it's unfortunate. It, it is, and it is a frustration, because you see that with, I mean, we've, we've heard it before, that so many of the people who hold to this view are people who I highly respect and who are fantastic biblical scholars. Um, <laughs> but, it, yeah, uh, over and over again, it is the traditionist arguments that convince me more and more Right of of this view, um, so we've got how long have we been going? I don't even know. We've, uh, I've we've been an hour, just about an hour. So, well, let's let's look as briefly as we can at Revelation twenty ten, um, and so shall we aim for about I don't know fifteen minutes, and then yeah, um, 
we, we can then always do this again if you're you're interested and and go from there. So yeah, as I said, Beal kind of makes the he makes the argument from hopping through Revelation, which I, I guess in some ways could be said about our argument for Revelation fourteen eleven is we hop to the whole of chapter eighteen and nineteen. Um, that seems significantly more convincing than just going to Revelation twenty. Uh, verse 10 now, I was just going to ask one, one last thing about Revelation 14 because it's kind of linked to this is who is it really that clear that Revelation 14:11 is all unbelievers oh no it's not at all clear and it's also as I said not at all clear that it's taking place in hell in the first place right yeah you have to kind of make that leap so then we when we get into Revelation 2010 so I've always gone whenever someone throws revelation 14 11 i'm always like who's in view who who are these people we've got to figure out a who they're worshiping as well because there's so many different arguments around who the beast is and, and whatnot I and mean, gen- generally we we're happy with the beast being the devil but even so there's there's a little bit of debate there but then the the assumption is well they're being tormented forever and ever so therefore that's all sinners and i i, I find that highly inconclusive and then mm. we get to Revelation 20, uh, 10. I'm probably starting around verse 7, actually. But 7, 7 to 9 get missed because they're a little bit confusing. We usually hear from 20, verse 10 to 15. Um, so we're looking at the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, therefore, eternal torment. Thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, this again ignores that distinction that I offered at least, you know, probably about a half hour ago between what takes place in the imagery and what it symbolizes in reality. Um, I think we can and should affirm that what is being depicted here in the vision, what, uh, and even that's, I'll come back to that in a moment, what is being depicted here in the vision is everlasting torment of the beast, the false prophet, and the devil. Um, and I'm comfortable saying that consistency suggests the same thing as what gets depicted when death and Hades are thrown into it and when um, human beings are thrown into it. Um, but uh, but what I was going to say, though, is it is interesting. John obviously didn't see torment forever and ever, and so in some way his vision communicated that this scene he was seeing is is a scene that if the video were allowed to keep on being played, it would keep on happening. But anyway, so it does seem like um, everlasting torment is taking place in the imagery. But my question is, so what? The question is, what does that imagery mean? And I think that every imaginable way of answering that question, every imaginable um, connection we can find in Scripture, uh, including the very passage we're looking at, um, makes this passage clear support for our view. So, for example, um, death and Hades are seen thrown into this fire after they are emptied of their dead. But death and Hades aren't, in reality, even conscious entities. They are the vision. They're horsemen, first appearing back when the four horsemen of the apocalypse are introduced. Mm-hmm. But but they're not in reality. So what does their fate in this sulfuric, fiery lake represent? Well, just a few verses later in Revelation 21, 8, uh, or not 21, 8, 21, uh, 4, God says, Hathanatos uk estai eti, death shall be no, be no more. Um, you know, this is the same kind of concept we 
see in First Corinthians 15, where Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death and... <laughs> Sorry, that's my favorite, that? that's my favorite chapter yeah. 1 Corinthians 15. It's beautiful. So, so death and Hades, fiery fate, represents the annihilation of death and Hades, the, the cessation of existence of the reality of dying and the reality of, a, of an intermediate state, an underworld, whatever. Um, the, the, that's number one. Number two, um, John and God both interpret this imagery for us, saying, uh, you know, John says in Revelation 21, or 2014, this is the second death, the lake of fire. Um, even more clearly, God says in Revelation 21.8, the lake of fire, or this is the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, you recall I mentioned a moment ago that when Joseph interpreted the baker's dream, he said the three baskets are three days. Mm. He also told the cupbearer that the three um, blossoms in the cupbearer's dream are three days. He told the he told Pharaoh that the seven the first seven cows in his dream are seven years of plenty, and then the seven the second seven cows in Pharaoh's vision are seven years of famine. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the that the tree is you. Um, that Daniel is told by an interpreter that the beast is a kingdom, and on and on it goes. You see the way that interpretation of this kind of symbolic apocalyptic vision. The, the way that interpretation is often done is by saying X is Y, where X is the thing in the vision, the thing that is seen in the imagery, and Y is the thing it represents in reality. And what's critical here is that it only functions as interpretation if the interpretation makes in plain, straightforward terms the meaning that is otherwise wrapped up in the, and hidden in the imagery. If, if the interpretation is just as metaphorical, just as prone to mis misinterpretation as the vision, then it's not interpreting anything, mm. right? Um, so second death should be taken just sort of in a plain, ordinary sense, literally dying a second time. And that's what John and God both say that this imagery symbolizes. In fact, and this is something that um, my friend William and I go into some detail in, in our paper that we're writing, the second death is not a phrase that's original to John. Um, the phrase second death appears in what's called the Targums. The Targums are ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in several Targums, Targum of the Psalms, Targum Isaiah, Targum, um, some of the other prophetic Targums, the phrase second death uh, appears. And although we have, although it's not clear to us as historians, um, just when these Targums were originally written, the fact that the phrase is, is so common in the Targums, and even common within the book of Revelation, means that John is um, appealing to a pre-existing concept known as second death. So what does the phrase second death refer to in these Targums? It refers to dying a second time in the eschaton, literally. Um, there, there are passages which say they will die the second death and not live in the age to come. And even G.K. Beale acknowledges that those places in the Targums that speak that way use second death to refer to what we're saying. Hmm. What he argues, though, and what some other interpreters of the Targums say is that there are a, a couple of places in the Targums where second death means something else. They're wrong about that, and that's what William and I will demonstrate in our paper. But the point I'm getting at is that um, this, by interpreting the lake of fire as symbolizing the second death, John and God are using plain, straightforward, ordinary language, dying a second time, and they're appealing to a pre-existent idea of the lost being raised and then literally dying a second time and never again experiencing life, um, which is all consistent with our view. 
And then finally, one last thing I'll add about this passage is that um, this imagery of beasts being thrown into a fire isn't original to John or his vision either. Daniel's vision of the beasts in Daniel 7, I think it is, yeah. um, has four beasts, and, and there's so many connections to the book of Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation, the beast there is described as having features like a lion, a bear, and a leopard, and those are the successive beasts that Daniel sees. Um, John's beast has seven heads and ten horns. The fourth beast of Daniel has seven heads and, and I think, ten horns. Um, most strikingly, uh, when John sees the beast thrown into the fire, he then sees what I call the kingdom of the reigning saints. Reigning as, as in R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, not R-A-I-N. You know. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the way John puts it is... Um, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. They were, oh, verse, verse uh, four, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, Daniel sees the same exact thing after his beast's fate in the fire. Um, hmm. To the ancient of days, verse 14 said, was, was given a kingdom, uh, a glory and a dominion. Um, his kingdom shall be one that's not destroyed. And then a little bit later in um uh, verse 27, he says, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So both of these visions are ostensibly, anyway, foretelling the same events because they're they're both talking about this reigning, the reigning saints immediately after the beast's fate in the fire. In fact, um, even Daniel's vision isn't the first one to use this imagery. We see the same thing in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. Um, you know, the statue has like a head of gold and a chest of iron or whatever. And there's these parts through the statue. And then this stone cut without hands comes down and destroys, hits the feet of the statue and destroys it. And then it swells to fill the whole earth. And it's interpreted as, as God's kingdom advancing across the globe. So you've got, so, so the point I'm getting at is that all three of these visions are foretelling the same events. But look what the angel interprets Daniel's vision to mean when it comes to the fourth, uh, the fourth beast when it's thrown into the fire. He says in um, verse uh, 26, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed yep. to the end. Yep. In fact, one translation, I think it's the... NASB um, says, uh, yeah, verse 26 in the NASB reads, the court will sit in judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, <laughs> and destroyed forever. So so look, John's not coming up with this imagery himself, and he's telling the same events. Yep. He's foretelling the same events. If the angel interprets Daniel's events as symbolizing the end to a kingdom's dominion, then we ought to think that it communicates the same thing in Revelation 20, that it, and it represents the end of the beast's dominion, the dominion exercised by the, by the institution symbolized by the beast. And if that's the case, that's perfectly consistent with what I've just said about the second death and about death and Hades being annihilated. Basically, what the symbolism of being tormented forever, the lake of fire communicates is a complete end. It, it, it's annihilation. And I think that that's the... Um, the most consistent way, both within the book of Revelation and consistent with the rest of the places I've mentioned, the most consistent way to interpret the passage. That's that's extremely helpful. I'm, I've not seen that in Daniel 7 uh, before. That's that's a nice one to add to my list. That uh, just just uh, and that's what keeps happening to me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just even wherever we're at, four years in. Um, so. That, I think that covers Revelation 20, 10 to 15. There's, just referring back to G.K. Bill, because that's what um, sure. I've been trying to trying to deal with. The um, 
I find it found it interesting that he gives five different ways to interpret what happens here. One oh, of the death of Hades. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. what what does it mean that death and Hades were cast in the leg of fire? Some interpret it to mean that death itself will be annihilated forever, and this will bear out that death shall be no more. So it's, it's, that's his first one. He then goes through that it could be um, figurative, and then he talks about the metonym, metonymy of that. Metonymy, I think. Yeah, is, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the and this is I don't know if you've read it. The skeletons in God's closet. Have you read that one? Oh, I've read parts of it. In fact, I think I yeah. I, I talked to Josh Butler on the phone. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So I, I read that because it was recommended to me when I was. Um, and and he does this where it kind of goes from Hades is emptied and then into the lake of fire and therefore the lake of fire is just a permanent Hades but Hades is destroyed. Uh, it's a bit of a it is a bit of an odd one that one and I, I found that frustrating because I don't see that there's no transitional language to say that that's what is happening when Hades and death are thrown yeah. into the lake of fire to say that it's, second it's, death... it's just an it's just an ad hoc attempt to make it the vision consistent with the doctrine yeah. of eternal torment and it kind of is trying to make sense of like king james version translation where they're all translated hell if they're all the same thing i guess then maybe we could have that but they're not so we we need to work that out and then what I like, what I, find, I just find it kind of funny because you end up with five fairly fair statements. These are all the views. And then you get the conclusion like this. Any of these five options is quite possible, though the third, that's the metonymy, metonymy, whatever. Uh, and the fourth view, which is all backed up by Apocrypha, yeah. are, are, the, are the preferable ones. Mm. So you have a view that's backed up by the most glorious book in the Bible, a passage in the Bible, my humble opinion, 1 Corinthians 15, that death will be no more, backed up by Isaiah 25 and Revelation 21. That sounds like a good basis to think that that's a, a good reading. But actually, no, we're going to go for the met- metonymy, <laughs> and then we're going to go for something backed up by 4th Ezra. I, I don't. I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't either. And, and notice something too about that metonymy answer. The, the way that G.K. G.K. Bill puts that is, death and Hades may be a metonymy in which the container is substituted for the contained. Now think about this for a minute. If we treat death and Hades as a container here, what happens to that container just before the container is thrown into the lake of fire? It's empty. It's empty. Yeah. How could it stand in as metonymy for the things it contains when it doesn't contain anything any longer before yeah. it's thrown in? It's an absolutely absurd, ad hoc way to try and make it consistent with eternal torment. Yeah. yeah. And and that, again, you just read these things and you go, well, the, at least he's given. One thing I, I will give to his credit, he's given the conditionist view and packed it. He's just put his preference at the end, which I don't understand why why that leap is, is there um so yeah i I've, i'm of the, very much of the mindset that these two passages do speak better and more consistently when you look at the entirety of scripture and that's been my gut instinct since i sort of started leaning this way but revelation 14, because so many traditionists just pummel you with fourteen eleven torment forever and ever it's got to be eternal you're making words mean other things is you kind of you do kind of go, well this this they might be right here so let's let's hold fire before we we 
really cross over the fence. But when you really, I mean, when you see things like Daniel seven and they'll be consumed and it will be no more. When you hear that language of no more in chapter eighteen of Revelation, and you see verse nineteen, chapter nineteen, verse three, where they're celebrating the smoke forever and ever, it's got, it, these are two single verses that we've got such evidence throughout the entirety of the Bible to say conditionalist is a better reading of this um and it's it is just a frustration that you kind of yeah you, you have to the the weight and burden of evidence for the conditionalist is it's so extraordinarily high that uh eternal conscious torment because of its tradition the weight of the tradition they just hand you 1411 and say it's over yeah. Like, pff, well, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. What can you do? Um, so, and that's kind of coming to an end. And I'd love to chat again if you're you're up for that. Oh yeah, anytime. Uh, I really enjoy hearing uh, all that. And um, one thing that I really want to wrestle with, I'm going to do a video fairly soon. So this is kind of for people watching as well. I've just been wrestling with the whole definition of death. Because that seems to be the crux for 2015 in Revelation. Just the idea that the lake of the second death is the lake of fire, whichever way I always get the wrong way around. Whichever way it is, the idea that death is this continuous existence, and that somehow makes sense of the word, despite all the other scriptures to the contrary. Um, yeah, it's just something I've been wrestling with. So, as just if you've got five minutes, this is kind of where how I define death. I've heard you talk about it being the cessation of life and uh, no longer functioning and experiencing. But just to sort of a bit, just have it on record, really. I'm currently thinking so the the kind of traditionalist reading of death is to go to Genesis two seventeen, which is in the day that they eat of it, they will surely die. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That means, well, they didn't die when they ate the fruit, and therefore death is this continual existence that we call life. Now, my definition in response to that, leaning quite heavily on John Walton's exposition, I think from the Genesis application commentary, he goes through and points out a whole different load of verses, I think one in Jeremiah 8, I think it is, which uses a very similar phrase, that basically summarizes Genesis 2.17 as a death sentence. That right. the day you eat of it, you will surely die is a, a sentence to death because I think it's, is it Jeremiah 8? I, I might have got that wrong. Where the similar thing is used and um, it's like you will surely die, but they don't die. They're just sentenced to death. Right. Um, and so what I find fascinating, though, is in those conversations with traditionists that hold that Genesis 2 verse 17 in that way, is they completely ignore the end of Genesis 3, where the curse is then read out as to what that death sentence is. And, and from dust you are to dust you shall return is the most succinct summary of death that I that that would be my definition of death is yes you are under the sentence of death and that's kind of where we get a spiritual death concept from Ephesians 2 but ultimately we are all walking towards our capital divine punishment unless Christ intervenes 
Is that does that sound like a fair definition of a conditionalist view of death? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, like you said, I, I I would say that the biblical definition is is the cessation and ongoing privation of life, specifically for human beings, embodied life. Um, and as you correctly point out, that seems to be what's what's happening in um, uh, Genesis uh, three, and and so the you know the warning of death is issued. And then when that sentence is carried out and, and, and explained in further detail, what is the death in view? You are dust, and to dust you will return. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, now, the Genesis 2.17 thing on the day, as you point out, uh, it, it's, it's not, not just it's, it's saying that the sentence would be, uh, be on that day, but, but, but also the phrase on the day in Hebrew does not, is not does not appear to be intended in the kind of wooden list literalistic way. We sometimes think of it like it must happen on that day. Um, John Walton, you know, he, he points out, as you said, he, he says in, um, uh, in his NIV application commentary, the expression in the day is one of the major Hebrew ways, one of the major ways in Hebrew to say when, and does not suggest that the events described will take place within the next 24 hours. So here's an example. If I said, when you eat too much, you get fat. Yeah. I'm not saying that you balloon up and become as obese as I am the instant you overeat. Yeah. I'm saying that the one surely leads to the other. And I think that's what's going on here. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Cool. Yeah, I'm trying to, there'll probably be a video that comes out uh, when I have some time in a, in a few weeks' time. So, um, I'll be, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when that's, when that's out. Because I, I feel that that, does seem to be one of the crucial points if you that you end up in a bit of a circular debate because you're just ending up one person's talking about spiritual death the other person's talking about death in the encompassing return to dust um and and so that's something that i would like to do so there's there's one question from the chat and i think then we can close up because i need to um probably spend my friday night (laughs) <laughs> with my with my wife, otherwise I'll end up in the doghouse. So, uh, Travis Lee, could you ask Chris his view on my question about if conditionalism? All oh, right. So he asked earlier on the chat uh, if conditionalism makes a good apologetic for unbelievers, or is this just an in-house debate? Yeah. Um, so I put a link in my comment replying to Travis. Thank you for the question, Travis. And as I as you can see, yes, I do think that it makes a good apologetic. And I published a journal article. Uh, called Dismissive of Hell, Fearful of Death. Uh, and I've included a link to it there. So, um, Philip, you can... Exactly. Yeah. And um, what uh, what I demonstrate in that article is that, first of all, many, many, many unbelievers cite the traditional doctrine of hell as a major reason why they why they reject the faith. Mm. They, find, they find it completely inconsistent with the notion of, an, of a loving God. They find it archaic and absurd. Um, and so already the doctrine of eternal torment struggles apologetically with this issue. Um, now, uh, meanwhile, those very same, uh, uh, unbelievers will typically tell you that the doctrine of annihilation doesn't have the same moral problem for them, doesn't make the Christian faith as objectionable. Now, of course, most of those skeptics and unbelievers have plenty of other reasons why they reject the faith. And so I'm not at all saying that it's going to suddenly, um, make anybody change their minds. But what I will say is, I have heard from a number of people who either um, were never a Christian to begin with or at some point walked away from the faith because of the doctrine of hell. 
and have now become Christians because they realize the Bible doesn't teach that traditional view. Um, and in this paper that I linked to, I argue that there's a there's an additional reason why I think this view does make for a um, an effective apologetic, and that's because I think that it naturally resonates with or taps into the um, the humankind's natural fear of death and their natural desire for immortality. And so I, I, I go through uh, the course of the history of Western civilization in this article showing how consistently human beings have feared death. And then I talk about those transhumanist efforts I mentioned earlier in our conversation to achieve immortality through technology. Um, that is evidence that humans desperately fear death and desperately want to live forever. And conditionalism says, you're, you're right that if you don't accept Christ, you're going to die. That faithful that fate you so fear is going to happen to you, and you will never live again, at least not after you're resurrected, judged, and, and destroyed again. But in our view, or but but in our view, you can achieve eternal life. Um, not just and not just by so not just eternal life, because even if they were able to achieve this through technology, which I don't think will ever happen, but even if they were, you'd still have the problem of sin. So you'd, you'd have, you know, the, the rich are the people who would be able to afford this technology. The poor would not. So the, the class division between the two classes would widen. Um, people that can afford this immortality technology will lose loved one after loved one after loved one because they're constantly dying because they can't afford the technology. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's going to be people... Um, going and ripping out the technological parts of some people and selling them on the black market and on and on it goes. So even the kind of immortality that they think they're going to be able to achieve by transhumanism is a bleak, dark picture. But what we have to offer, what Christ has to offer is a, an escape from death unto an eternal life, not just in the presence of God, worshiping God, if indeed that's what God has for us, but, but, one in which there's no more sin, no more hatred, no more animosity, there's love, there's joy, there's excitement. And if you have a very robust picture of eternal life, for example, I see no reason to think that the process of learning and of discovery and of exploration and, yeah. uh, and, and all these things, I think they'll keep on going on forever. And you can imagine right now that the reason why we can't do things like explore the distant reaches of the cosmos or the deepest depths of the ocean is because of, number one, our mortality, and number two, the lack of technology. But if forever human beings are immortal and advancing in technology, on and on, more and more and more advanced, and we don't have sin, just imagine what we'll be able to do. We'll be able to explore the cosmos and the depths of the ocean, and we'll we'll learn more and more scientifically about how the universe operates. Theologically, we might learn more and more about God's character and his his design and so forth. It's it's an eternal life, it's a picture of eternal life that is far from boring or bleak. It's exciting yeah. and it's joyous. And yeah. uh, and so yes, I yeah, so I do think it's a great apologetic, um, but time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> And I, as I said before we came online, just the the good news of digging into this was actually my re an awakening of, and understanding of the eschaton, of the new creation, of God dwelling with his people, with heaven and earth coming back together. And it, 
And there's something about, um, I don't know if you follow the Bible Project, but I listen to them a quite bit. a lot. And um, it's always about the return to Eden. It's always about, because the Tree of Life pops back up in Revelation 22, 21. And, uh, and just, it's, it's going to be us fulfilling what we were originally called to do, to uh, rule the earth, to subdue it, but in a way that, yeah, sin and death no longer corrupts it. And that's such such better news than babies and harps in heaven. <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, amen to all that. I think um, it's something to look forward to. It is a hope that we have. And uh, and that's why I, I do this, really, because I think it's also an apologetic to other Christians. And I've met people that are terrified of hell, and they are saved. Um, and I think just a better understanding of, of God's just, justice, judgment, um, but also his mercy and, and the hope that we have through Christ is, is just so much more hopeful and glorious um, than this bleak picture of a God who torments ongoing in this realm that has to be recreated specifically mm. for it. So, yeah, absolutely. A great apologetic for it. As I said in the comments, again, it's one of the videos I'd lo love to do is just a video on why you shouldn't be afraid of hell. <laughs> uh, we're, we're never called to be afraid of hell we're only called to fear the one who can send us there um, mm -hmm. and so on that note I think that's a, a good place to end on uh, with the hope of heaven hope that yeah hope that answered your question Travis I've seen that that's come through and uh, Chris just thank you so much I really appreciate all you're doing with Rethinking Hell and Rethinking Hell Live and, and to the team that do all the articles I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Glenn the other day as well so um, yeah hopefully we'll do this again soon and uh, I'll sign off here and uh, uh, well wait, wait really quick let me yeah. just encourage uh, your viewers to check out RethinkingHellConference.com yes of course yeah um, yeah yeah, we, we have been having annual conferences since our first one in 2014, and we've been all over the globe. We were in Texas the first year, California the second, London, England third, um, Auckland, New Zealand the fourth year. We're back in the States. The fifth year we were in um, Dallas-Fort Worth. Last year we were in Enid, Oklahoma, and then this year our seventh annual conference will be in Seattle, Washington, which is my neck of the woods. It'll be November 6th and 7th. The speakers will include, besides myself, uh, Paul Copan and um, Tim Barnett of the Ministry Stand to Reason and Clay Jones of Biola University. All three of them are believers in eternal torment. Um, so, you know, our conferences are not um, uh, high five parties for conditionalists. Yeah. You know, we, 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 this is an important conversation to have with everybody at the table. And the theme of this year's conference is going to be apologetics and the challenge of hell. Um, and so we're, we're going to be discussing how this very thing we've been discussing, to, you know, how can we as Christians better answer this apologetic problem of hell than perhaps Christians have done in times past. So if people want to check out the conference, there, there's both in-person tickets and there's much cheaper online tickets if people just want to watch live. Um, and all those details and more can be found at RethinkingHellConference.com. Absolutely. I'll be trying to get, I think the stream i don't think i'll be able to make it <laughs> probably not but hopefully you'll be able to stream. yeah um great thank you again chris and uh thanks for those who have come on the chat and uh and, 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 and philip thanks for what you're doing i meant what i said when i posted a link to your youtube uh channel a couple of months ago um it's so it's so exciting to me to see people sort of taking the baton and doing this kind of thing themselves um thank you for what you're doing and and you know if you ever 
if you ever get um, discouraged by a small number of views or anything like that, don't be because um, you might change one person's heart and that will be all will make all the difference in the world. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I'm, I'm proud of you and, and I, I'm grateful for you. Cheers. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I, I'm very glad for the Facebook group that does keep keep me sane. But, um, <laughs> cheers. Thanks so much, Chris. And thanks all for watching. And uh, I hope you have a good night. This is The Hell Project, where I defend the view that without Christ, we're all dead. So take care. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. And I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel. But I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online thank you so much for listening if you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a paypal link otherwise i do this all for free and i hope you found it helpful god bless you see you later